I would invite you to turn this morning in a copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 20. If you do not have your Bible with you, uh, let me encourage you to look around you and find one on the seats there uh, that you would be able to follow along with us and read with us and learn together with us. 1 Samuel chapter 20. This is a lengthy chapter and on account of the length of it, we're going to divide it into two different sermons. And so we're going to do the first portion this week and then we will finish the the story next week. And we're going to look at it together and try to see how uh, it teaches us and informs our life and our faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. But we're going to be in 1 Samuel 20 and we will read verses 1 through 23 together this morning. So turn there with me and uh, before we read it, let's pray. Lord our God, we, uh, we, we ask now that by the power of your Spirit, you would open your word to our darkened eyes. God, that you would plant it deep within our darkened hearts and that its fruit in us would abound. God, that your word would be a seed that takes deep root and grows and flourishes into the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. So use your word this morning to transform us into the image of Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay. For Samuel 20, verses 1 through 23. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. Then why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father... About this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? 
But it should please my father to do but if it should please by my father to do you harm, the Lord does so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on the house of David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the young man, saying, Go, find the arrows. If I say to the young man, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. Then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which, I, of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. Okay, so sometimes it's best when we study the scriptures together, and especially in passages that are of some great length and of some uh, real difficulty, and this passage actually is both of those things. Sometimes the easiest way to really wrap our minds around it and then to understand and to apply it to our lives is just to ask questions of the text. I mean, it's kind of how I study the scripture, and uh, sometimes I have uh, outlines and alliterations and things that help us learn and understand them more easily. But sometimes the easiest way is just to ask the questions of the text together. And so that's what we're going to do this morning on account of the length and some of the difficulties of the passage. We're going to ask, what was David dealing with? Then where did David turn for help? Why did David turn there? And then lastly, how? How do we apply the story to our lives? Okay, so kind of the what, where, why, how type uh, questions of the text. And I think it's going to be the easiest way for us to walk down through it together. Before we do that, let's kind of backtrack just a bit and get a running start in putting ourselves in the situation. And particularly with dealing with the first question, what is it that David was dealing with? Let's remember that in chapters 18 and 19, David and Jonathan have struck up a friendship. Uh, and it says in the beginning of chapter 18 that God uh, put their souls together or knit their souls together. And it tells us on multiple occasions that Jonathan loved David as his own soul and cared for him. And so there's been this friendship uh, struck up in God's providence and according to God's direction. And then God uses that friendship among other uh, relationships to deliver David from the hand of his enemies because the enemies of David have now grown uh, in number and in stature. Particularly the king, Saul, now seeks David's life, and he does so, unlike previously, he does so publicly. He has come to his cabinet and his officials, and he has made known his plot to take David's life. And so he has said, listen, this is my goal, and this is how I want us to do it, and this is what we're going to, this is the agenda, if you will. And so he has made public his intention to kill David. And so the chapters 18 and 19 then rehearse the stories of David's 
fleeing from King Saul and evading his capture and and God's providence, uh, these relationships, whether it was Jonathan or Michael or David's own clever and cunning, uh, where God delivered him time and time again from the hand of King Saul. So there is something of the theme then of God's careful and faithful protection of David on account of the promises that he has made to David. Because David has been uh, appointed uh, as king over God's people. It has been declared to Saul that God is no longer with him and he is under judgment and God's spirit and God's word have departed from him. So we have a king that's under judgment and we have a coming king that is under persecution. And so when we get then to... Chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah, and he came and he sought out Jonathan. So David is now in the situation where, if you remember, at the end of chapter 19, Saul, by the power of God's Spirit directly, has been caught up in in prophesying with the prophets. Uh, we're not 100% sure exactly what was going on, except it is sufficient for us simply to see and understand that God's spirit overtook Saul and all of Saul's henchmen that pursued David's life. So So that David was able to be let out of his house and to sneak and to get away and then to have plenty of time because they were held up as they were overcome by God's spirit and were acting in a way that was not normal to their conscience. And and David was given plenty of time to flee, as it says in chapter 20, verse 1, from Naoth and Ramah and to come to Jonathan. Well, I've rehearsed all of that so that we can then look in chapter 20, continue asking ourselves the question, what was it that David was dealing with? And the answer is he was dealing with grave difficulty. Okay, but it is a difficulty that I do not think that we can fully appreciate. Well, I mean, even on the on the face of it, on the surface, I'm not aware of any of you um, whose lives have been hunted. I I don't know. I'm going to assume that's probably not the case in the culture we live in. So even on the face of it, the whole situation with the king and the kingdom and the jealousy, the love of all of the people that have experienced Deliverance by David and his victories, militarily speaking, uh, the jealousy that's welled up in the king, the uh, decree to his death that has been given to the king's courts, all of these things that have now welled up to this situation where David is literally running like a hunted animal. And, And even on the face of it, I don't think that's something that we can ever appreciate. But to make matters worse, and I think to help us understand the full depth of not only the physical or external difficulty of David's life, we're given the first few verses of chapter 20, I think to help us understand something of even the internal questions and structure that David is dealing with. Look at what happens once he comes to Jonathan. What does he begin to ask him? What have I done? What is my guilt? What sin have I committed against your father, the king? that he seeks my life. And I think there are two aspects of this. On the one hand, and I think most importantly, and maybe most the the main drive of his question, is that of vindication. 
He is coming to Jonathan. He is appealing to Jonathan and he is asking him the questions, what have I done to deserve this? There is no reason. Why is it that your father seeks my life? All David knows is that his father is seeking his life. It's been made clear to him in the events of the previous chapter that he is now uh, very unhappy, is very jealous, and he desperately wants to do away with David. But David doesn't know why. And so I think on one, I think on the one hand, he's sort of pressing the family of King Saul to acknowledge, what is it that I've done? I haven't done anything. But I think there is a second aspect of this difficulty, and that is the internal turmoil that David would have had wondering whether or not he's done anything wrong. And, and friends, on a totally different maybe level, I think this is something that we can all relate to, isn't it? Because when the difficulties of God's providence turn severe in our lives, one of the temptations is to wonder what we've done to deserve it. Is God angry with me? Is, is, is this God's judgment upon my life? And I think this would have been a reality that David would have struggled with to some degree. What have I done? What is my guilt? And, and I think this struggle becomes evident whenever he suggests, you know, if I've done anything wrong, you can just kill me now. You don't even need to bother with taking me to your father. If I've committed a sin, just expose that sin and show that to me. The point is, what I want you to see is that David was dealing with a, an intense, physical, temporal, external, and internal spiritual struggle in his life. He's in a very, very dark valley. And friends, it's helpful for us on a number of, on a number of levels and, and in a number of ways to look back at God's word and to study about God's people, God's chosen ones, his appointed kings that trod the very dark valleys of God's providence because we are going to walk them as well. You may be trotting that valley this morning or one that to you seems equally as dark. And you may be wondering, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? How am I going to make it? I'm at the end of my rope. Friends, if nothing else, take confidence in looking that David, from whom the promised Messiah would descend. David, God's anointed king over God's special people. King David was in a very, very difficult and dark place at this point in his life. He was in fear of his life. He was on the run and separated from his family. He was completely out of resources with nowhere to turn and nothing to offer. He could not rest in his own ingenuity for the king was the sovereign over all of the land. This is evident when he says to Jonathan, who at least seems to be not convinced at this point that his father genuinely seeks to kill David, he says to Jonathan, no, you don't understand. There is but one step between me and death. I don't know. Maybe you feel like there is but one step between you and death or defeat or destruction this morning. Uh, well, look, David has been there. David has been there. And he was experiencing this great difficulty in his life. And that should then lead us to the second question. If you are in something of that type of difficulty, then you want to know, where do I turn? Where do I go? At the end of the rope, do I just let go and fall? 
Where do I turn? Well, where did David turn? Well, as I've already alluded to, and as the very first verse of this passage tells us, he turned to Jonathan. But why Jonathan? Let's remember that this is something of a peculiar relationship, isn't it? That their friendship should not have existed. That, that, that Jonathan's love for David and David's love for Jonathan, at least in human terms, it should not be because David was the anointed king, the coming king, the promised king, and Jonathan was the heir to be king. He was the prince of the king over God's people, and so David stood in sort of direct opposition to all of the hopes that Jonathan would have had for the crown and for prestige and for position in the community and in the kingdom. So it was a peculiar relationship. And now David is coming to Jonathan, who not only is the prince to the throne, is still in the good graces of the king that hates him. How do we know? I mean, look, he comes to Jonathan and he asks these questions. Why is it that your father seeks my life? Jonathan is not convinced Uh, You're not going to die. And then what's his reasoning? Behold, my father does not do anything great or small without disclosing it to me. Jonathan was still the confidant of King Saul. And although there probably was some tension in their relationship over some certain things that we've even seen in this text, he was still the prince, he was still Saul's son, and he was still, by all accounts, in his good graces. He was the confidant of King Saul. Well, King Saul is seeking David's life. And David goes to the last place I would have gone, to the confidant of the king. Why? Why, Jonathan? This peculiar friendship, in human terms, this friendship that should never have been, why did he go where he went? Because he wasn't so much going to Jonathan. He was running to the covenant. And friends, it's, it's so important that we see this distinction. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 18, when it says that God knit the souls of David and Jonathan together, It says that on account of the love that Jonathan had for David, he made a covenant with him. And you remember, we we talked about that a little bit um, to some length when we studied chapter 18, that he made a covenant with him, that he entered into the deepest of human and non-human relationships that we have in all of the Bible, that he entered into a covenant, faithful covenant, devoted, constant, committed relationship to do certain things for David. You know, in a covenant, there are two parties, and each of the parties pledge certain realities, and if those realities are broken, then the covenant is broken, and the curses of breaking the covenant come upon the guilty party that did not keep up their end, so that there are covenant blessings, covenant promises, and covenant cursings, and Jonathan, it tells us in the text, made a covenant with David. When you get to verse 8 in this, I'm not making this up, you want to know why, Look at verse 8. He goes to Jonathan, and at the end of their sort of conspiring together on how this is going to 
go down and what their plan is going to be. Look at verse 8. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant. Now, that's really not a very good translation in my opinion. This is the Hebrew language of chesed which you can go to Psalm 89 that we read at the beginning of this, when it talks about the steadfast love of the Lord, or in other places in Scripture and in other translations, it talks about the covenant faithfulness of God time and time and time again. That is the exact same language and the exact same word in the Hebrew that is present here. What he says is, deal on account of the covenant faithfulness with your servant. Deal with this devoted kindness, this committed love and companionship and friendship on account of the covenant that you've made with me. Deal kindly with me, not just be nice, but be nice when it's hard and be nice when it's not deserved and love me when you shouldn't. You see, and so he's not appealing to David on a human level. And while so many preachers want to turn to this passage and drum up all sorts of warm, fuzzy emotions about friendship. Friends, friendship is important, and I hope God blesses you with a tremendous amount of them. That is not what this passage is about. He's not turning to David on account of friendship in human terms. He's turning to David on account of relationship in spiritual terms. He's turning to Jonathan on account of the covenant that Jonathan has committed to and made with him. He's saying, Jonathan, remember the covenant promises that you made to me. Remember the love that you committed to have for me. Remember the favor that you promised to show me. And it's very interesting in, a, in this covenant appeal as he turns to these covenant realities that David sees himself as the lesser of the two parties. And that's, that is interesting. But how many times in this text, if you read the story when we read it together, and we're not going to read all of it again, but how many times did David refer to himself as your servant? Be kind to your servant. Deal favorably with your servant. He was humiliating himself before the prince, the son of the king. He was appealing to the covenant promises and realities that he made, but he was doing so in a state of humility. And I think that's important because it changes our understanding of the way that this covenant relationship would have, the, the, the way that their interaction would have gone. We may be tempted to think David was calling in a favor. That he was going to Jonathan and putting his arm around his good buddy and saying, man, I really need a, a favor from you. It can't be that, though. Why? Because a favor necessitates that someone owes you something. And Jonathan did not owe David anything from David's perspective because David comes in a state of humiliation, not in a state of authority. David did not come and say, I need you to do something for me. You remember, you remember last year? Remember two weeks ago or whatever the case may be, it wasn't on account of Jonathan's owing him anything. He came humiliated, not in a negative sense, but he came humiliated as the lesser party appealing to the covenant promises that the superior party has made. And simply says that you made this covenant because of the love that you had for me, so now be faithful to those covenant promises. Do you notice he's not saying you owe it to me? Notice he's also not saying you des that he deserves it, that, that, that I am somehow deserving of your favor, right? That would, have been a, that would have also been a position of authority where you come to someone sort of as a power over them or a position over them. You're the boss. People should love you. 
They should look out for you, right? David did not, David did not come in and say, you, you, hey, I'm the next king. You seem to know that. I, we're not 100% sure of, of the depth of Jonathan's knowledge, but the text seems to be clear in chapters 18 through today. It seems to be clear that he has a very real knowledge of God's promises to David and his plans and intentions for David as king. Even as he, even as he sort of gave him his robe, you remember, in his garments, his kingly garments, and sort of uh, passing of the baton, if you will, according to God's providence. David didn't come to Jonathan and say, hey, you know I'm the king. Can, can you do me this favor? Can, can you help me out in this situation? That he wasn't appealing to his authority, that he would have been entitled to Jonathan's service. He wasn't appealing to, uh, he wasn't appealing to the fact that Jonathan might have owed him some favor. Not, none of those things. For, listen, in the covenant relationship as David understood it, he simply comes and he appeals to covenant realities. And it's important. I'm making a big deal about the structure of these realities. It's a big deal that we understand these covenant realities. That David comes as the lesser party. And he does not say, you owe me this. He does not say, can you help me here? He does not say, can you do me a favor? He does not appeal to him as an equal or as a superior. He comes as the inferior. And he simply appeals to the truth and the reality that you loved me enough and you were so full of love for me that you made these covenant promises to me. Now I'm appealing to you to be faithful to them. That's hugely important. He turns to, he turns to Jonathan for help on account of the covenant that he made. But why does that matter? What does the covenant truth of the relationship they had mean? What does it accomplish, in other words, that they existed in a covenant with one another such that David would appeal to his covenant promises, not on account of being owed or anything like that? Why does that matter? Well, because, because it changes the way that Jonathan is going to and must, quite frankly, relate to David. If you start in verses about 11 or 12 down through about verse 17, you literally could do away with those from the text and you would not miss anything about the story. You could go directly from verse, say, 10 or 11 and jump right down to verse 18 and you would not be missing much of the text in terms of the order of events and the story that took place. And anytime that is the case, we always wonder, so why are these verses here? And I think because it tells us about the magnitude of what this covenant reality brings, what it accomplishes on David's behalf and between both of these people. Notice, let's just look at verse 12 then. Jonathan then says to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness, write all of this formal covenantal language. When I have sounded out my father or when, I've, when I've, I've heard about this, when I've listened about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? So he's promising to honor David and to protect David and to go against the, the, the will and the language of his father and to give David an opportunity to escape. But should it please my father to do you harm? 
The Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away. So he's committing his own well-being. If he does not come good on protecting David and disclosing the danger to him so that you might be able to go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. The covenant causes him to bless David. If I'm still alive. Look at the second part. If I'm still alive, this is Jonathan still speaking, not David. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David again. I don't know if this is a new covenant or if it's just a rehearsal of the covenant that existed from chapter 18. May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Friends, there's two things that are of profound importance of what this uh, nearly miraculous, what this covenant reality accomplished, what it did in their relationship. Very briefly consider, on the one hand, it brought Jonathan to defy the king and his father. To defy his king... And his father, who happened to be the same person, but those relationships stand separate to some degree from one another. There was the authority of the king and the same authority that he expressed over all of his people, he expressed over Jonathan also. And it was a very uh, unwise thing to defy the king. It was also an unwise, and it's not a prudent thing to defy your own father. But on account of the covenant promises that he made... He was willing to go against the will of his father. Secondly, he was willing to go against the wisdom of the culture. Listen, if not only was he going to be protecting the the man that was going to become king, the man that was going to become king was promising to bless and preserve and protect the lineage of the former kingship. What happens even in lion prides when a new lion takes over the pride? He kills all of the children and runs off all of the adults that are the progeny of the previous king. Now, these are not a bunch of lions, but friends, it was the, that is a principle that in some ways crosses over into the human world because when a new family took over the monarchy or the kingship of a certain kingdom, the last people that they protected or preserved were those who were connected to the previous kingship because it was in their best social and cultural and financial and powerful interest to do away with all of those who would have had any claim to the throne. And so Jonathan is caused and brought to a place on account of the covenant realities that he had made with David to defy the current king. And David, as Jonathan appeals to his covenant promises, David, as the coming king over all of God's people, is driven to a place to promise to protect and preserve 
those who were connected to the previous kingship and had a very real and legitimate claim to the throne. Now, I simply explain all of that simply to tell you this, that on account of covenants and because of what a covenant means and because of what a covenant can accomplish, it requires a great deal of those that exist in covenants together. Friends, because of covenant relationships, we must be willing to break down social barriers. We must be willing to, uh, to do away with cultural wisdom, to do things that the culture might say are unwise. Our covenant relationships with other people trump any human relationships that we have. I mean, don't you think, as one commentator pointed out, I thought was so apropos here, don't you think that Jonathan would have known and understood all too well the words of Christ, that if anyone does not hate his father or his mother or his brother or his sisters, then he does not love me. Right? Something of the covenant relationship that trumps even human relationships. And friends, covenant relationships, as I said a moment ago, because of what they do and they require and they accomplish, they both require and encourage incredible sacrifice. Now, I've said all that to say, what well, David was dealing with this great difficulty. He turned to Jonathan because of this covenant And the reason he did that is because of what a covenant is and what a covenant does and what a covenant requires. The question then for us is, as we bring it to a close, how does this impact me today? How do do I apply this discussion of covenants and this story where this covenant relationship existed between these two men? How do I apply it to my life? And there are actually many ways. I'm only going to give you two. First. First. When we look at this story and we see the depth of the relationship that existed between Jonathan and David, and we see their willingness to keep their covenant commitments even when the culture and current wisdom and thought and social barriers would have said, don't, don't make those promises, don't do those things, you're foolish if you do. They were willing to go against all of those things on account of the covenants that they had made with one another. Friends, first we must learn something of the importance of covenant relationships, and we must be encouraged to love and faithfulness in them wherever we have promised it. Now, we've never experienced a relationship just like this. And so you may say, well, we, we don't have a kingdom and one kingdom is not passing away and another kingdom is not coming. And I mean, look, I get it. This is a unique situation. But friends, because this is a biblical reality, we exist in covenant with one another. Why do you think we stand before God and his people in marriage and we promise to do certain things for one another and to have certain thoughts toward one another and to be there for one another in sickness and in health and in good times and in bad and only to be separated from one another by death. Friends, because you're making a covenant together. 
You are making covenant promises to do these things. And friends, Christ encourages husbands to love your wives as Christ has loved the church. And that covenant relationship then between husbands and wives that is reflected at the marriage altar then trickles down, even if it's not verbally made, into all of the relationships in the family. So that parents exist in a covenant with their children to provide for them even when they don't deserve it. And to love them even when they're not worthy of it. And to meet their needs and to be there for them and to hold them up and to encourage them in faith. We exist in covenant in families and friends. Then the scripture contributes, I mean encourages that the body of Christ is what? A family. All of the illustrations about our relationships to one another are familial in the in, in God's word in the scriptures. Because it's trying to get us to see that we are covenanting together. Friends, to love one another and to hold one another accountable and to encourage one another and to protect and to preserve one another to the best of our abilities and to do things for one another that the culture may seem to be, uh, may think to be foolish. Friends, do you see how those, and, and there are so many others, even on a smaller level, the covenant promises that you've made to your employers. Friends, we exist by way of covenant with one another. If, if, we, if we don't learn anything else from this passage and our desire to apply it to our own hearts, friends, be encouraged to see something of the importance of them. And friends, be encouraged to keep the covenant commitments that you've made. Love your spouses and your children and fight for them, not on account of them as the lesser party, but because of the covenant promises you made based on the love that you had for them. You see, secondly, we must learn not only the importance, but something of the principle of covenants. This is a principle that David knew well, and that is simply this. this if you were going to articulate the point of this passage in one sentence, I think it would go something like this. When you are at the end of your rope, when you don't have anything to offer, and when you can't save yourself, depend on covenant promises. Why? Because ultimately this is a picture of Jesus Christ making a covenant to be faithful to save and to protect and to preserve his chosen ones. So that as the lesser ones in the party, we will frequently, friends, reach the end of our ropes. We will frequently trod the dark valleys. We will frequently find ourselves in difficulties for which we have absolutely no answer. Friends, in that state of humiliation, let us plainly put, call upon the covenant promises that God has made toward us in Christ. And friends, isn't it encouraging to know that if by grace through faith in Jesus, you have been redeemed, then God to his own detriment is bound to keep those promises to you. Even when you're unworthy, even when you don't deserve it, 
and even when it may not be in his best interest. Friends, all of the promises that God has made to his people, they are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And in this story, we must be given to understand that when we have nowhere else to turn, we must turn to the covenant. Namely, to the covenant of salvation that God has made with us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the truth of the gospel. That in Christ, there is salvation for sinners. Lord, that you have covenanted, you have promised to save to the uttermost, to protect and to preserve to the uttermost, to the end of eternity, all of those who trust in Jesus Christ and in his righteousness for their salvation and for their eternal inheritance. And so, God, we come to you this morning with nowhere else to turn. God, we do not have anything to offer. Lord, you do not owe us a favor. God, we have no right to even ask. But Lord, we come humbly to you, appealing to those covenant promises. For you have covenanted to save us, and so may it be so. God, protect us and preserve us because of the promises you've made for us in Christ Jesus. God, thank you that the covenant faithfulness and the steadfast love that you have for us will never fade and it will never fail. May it be the encouragement of our souls this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.